Hello and welcome to Dragon's Demise, the podcast about what happens on, around, and behind the tabletop. Today, I'm joined, as always, by Greg. That's me. And we will be talking about different GMing styles. The good, the bad, and the ugly. But well, first... <laughs> <laughs> there's differences of opinion on what constitutes any of those things. True, exactly. But first, let's talk a little bit about what we've been playing lately. Yeah, so we have played a couple of things on stream, a couple of different things. We had Betrayal at the House on the Hill. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was a couple Wednesdays ago now, which was... Great. You know, it's always fun to get that to table. We played the Widow's Walk expansion and at least one of the haunts. Just one, yes. Yeah, the first one, I think, was from Widow's Walk, and that was exciting. It was interesting, too. I mean, it was a haunt that had us pretty much put out the entire stack of tiles. Right, because then I, as the betrayer, had to, I removed my pawn from the board and picked one of those tiles in which to hide. Mm-hmm. So that was that was really interesting, actually, from that perspective, kind of playing around with the mechanics a little bit. And, you know, each haunt being different is such a fascinating aspect of Betrayal at the House of the Yeah, Hill. for sure. And so it was cool. It's always cool to see sort of how the different mechanics get expressed. Yeah, for sure. It's interesting, though. We, we had definitely an issue where our betrayers got a little bit hosed. Yes, I, I as the betrayer in that first scenario, I got a little bit hosed simply because you guys were asking all the right questions. And I did actually shoot myself in the foot a little bit by not picking a room with a more generic floor. Yeah. Uh, the room that I had picked was the cave, which I thought was relatively good. I mean, it was featureless. It had four exits. Like, it was fairly solid, I thought. But I wasn't thinking about the fact that you guys did end up narrowing things down by the type of flooring. Yeah. So, you know, you've got in the house itself, predominantly wood, stone, and tile. Yeah. And, you know, once you exclude all of those, you're left with outdoor tiles, which was literally your first question. Yeah. And then like four other tiles. Yeah, pretty so, much. So, uh, yeah, you found me pretty quickly. But then Will, as the second betrayer, yeah, he also got got the shaft a little bit just by virtue of I think it was a combination of placement of us, like where we happened to be on the map at the time, and also the fact that we had access to that blessed room. Mm -hmm, For sure. I think that just was a problem. And even it was particularly a problem for that haunt. The fact that the nature of that haunt, we had to research how exactly a particular cursed weapon could kill a spectral uh, Mm -hmm. serial killer. Which meant we were making successive rolls, and yep. we all had to be in the same place because only one of us could hold the item, and the rest of us had to perform research on it. Yeah. Which meant we could all just sort of stack up in this area where we got one free die on every single one of our rolls, which was just incredibly powerful for that specific context. I think if it had been a, a haunt that was much more mobile, mm-hmm. you know, many of them are. It's it's a chase yep. situation. I think that probably would have gone a lot better for him. I completely agree. I think that it was just, it was literally the situation. We had the haunt pretty early on as well. So even though we had all the rooms that we needed, we were very, very close to each other. Mm-hmm. So that meant that there was a lot of stuff that it was just like, okay, well, yeah, I'm going to use my one action to get through like the entire place that we have to get to where we need to be. And in general, I think that uh, that was just really useful for us and hosed well a little bit yeah i definitely agree Mm -hmm. 
Though also on stream, we actually got to play some Raiders, Raiders of uh, North Sea. We played it once before, and we've mm -hmm. talked about it a little bit. And it is a very interesting worker placement game because your action is pretty much you place one worker and you take one worker off. And you do those two actions when you're in the actual harbor. And then when you go raiding, you place one worker, that's your turn, but you always get another one back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very elegant. You know, it's very simple. It's, you know, place one, take one, and that's always going to be exactly what you do, whether you're in the village or whether you're raiding. And so I think in terms of just sort of the way, the mnemonic that you can use to remember, okay, making sure that I've done everything I need to on my turn, very simple, which frees up that much more of your brain to focus on strategizing and thinking about how you're going to succeed on that next raid or what cards you need to take in order to, to advance your strategy. Yeah, for sure. And I liked it. I thought that it, it, it's a fun game. I, I do definitely understand why it was nominated for the spiel. Mm-hmm. It has very elegant mechanics. It's simple yet interesting enough to like keep you coming back. Yeah. It has enough like just the differences in like how people are gonna do things, what cards come up because you have your crew members and all that kind of stuff. And the fact that you are almost unable to pretty much have your crew the same for the entire game. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because true. of the Valkyries, so you have to actually kill them. Even if you have an amazing first hand, you might not be able to keep that through the entire game. Mm -hmm. I mean, I did, and that almost cost me the game, but also did give me a lot of points. Yeah, yeah, you managed to get together a really strong raiding crew and just go nuts. Yeah, uh, you you just ran roughshod all over all of those raiding sites. Pretty much. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the fact that I, I almost closed the gap, yep. I think, just sort of does highlight the fact that there are multiple paths to victory, which is important with any worker placement game, even though this one's pretty far from, like, your, quote, typical Euro. <laughs> um, you've got multiple ways to get a pretty substantial number of points. You went the hardcore rating strategy. Mm -hmm. I went more of the offering route. And we, we did end within you know, a stone's throw of each other. I was five points back. Yeah, where exactly. At the end of play, before my points had been factored in from endgame scoring, but after yours from rating had been factored in, I think you were leading me by like... I lapped you. You did. Yeah, you were leading me by like 60 points. Something like that. Yep. Yeah. So, you know, interesting to see that. And I think that's obviously a, a sign of a well-balanced game. And For sure. And definitely worthy of that, that nomination. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I enjoyed it, and I'll definitely be playing it again. I'm hopefully going to to get the entire Runesea saga to table at some point. Ooh. Let's do a stream of everything all together. That would be pretty fantastic. Um, and I definitely want to see how the expansions work and what they add, because there are some expansions out right now, and yeah. I think it would be really interesting to see exactly what they add. Yeah, me too. I, I'm definitely looking forward, and now that we've played it again, uh, a little bit more recently, a bit fresher in my mind, and I'm a bit more competent with the mechanics. I think next time we can definitely bust those out. Yeah, definitely. I've also had a chance to play Spirit Island. Nobody's surprised by this. Um, I was I've about to say, surprise, surprise. I, what <laughs> did Greg play today? Yeah, had a chance to play. We played one two-player game, which was not against an adversary, just on the thematic map. And that was pretty tight, but we did pull it out. And then um, I, solo like crazy. I've been playing so many solo games lately. I have started playing against adversaries. They do yep. make the game pretty intense. Even so, there's on the on the sheet on the chart. 
there's levels one through six, mm -hmm. but you don't even have to play with levels. There's a level called base where you don't implement any of those things. And the only thing that changes is the little flags on the okay. stage two cards actually have an effect now, mm -hmm. which dramatically changes the flow of the game. Because now instead of having, you know, a little over half, like 60% of the game be one land type gets, you know, built or ravaged and nothing else. Yeah. And then the last third of the game or so is more intense. You have a much more steady ramp up where you've got, okay, you've got maybe three turns to really get some solid ground. And then bam, these flag effects, these escalations are going to start hitting you and they can be pretty intense. Brandenburg, Prussia, the last enemy that I just played against their stage two escalation mechanic is that you add a town to a land that doesn't already have a town. So if you're looking for sort of a containment strategy, which is mm -hmm. something that we really like, you know, yes. sort of put all of, put as many people as possible into one place and just say, yeah, we'll never deal with that. <laughs> but at least they're not blighting everywhere at once. That's really hard to pull off with both Brandenburg and England, another sort of building focused one, just because they're, they're putting down so many extra towns in places that you can't control. So they do change the game in really interesting ways. I'm still hunting for my first loss. Yep. I think that's going to be a very pivotal moment for me. Mm -hmm, and probably. Uh, I'll uh, continue to report back from Spirit Island. Yeah, for sure. Well, there you have it. That's a look at what we've been playing. So moving now into sort of the meat of our episode today, we're going to be taking a look at a couple of different styles of game mastering. And as is seems to be customary, actually, with a lot of our RPG-focused episodes, we're sort of looking at a spectrum or looking at comparative ways of doing things, because I think that's really a lot of what tabletop role-playing is, is sort of navigating some of these murky waters. So yeah. in this case, we're looking at two styles that are generally held up as opposite poles in GMing. You've got, on the one hand, preparation, and on the other hand, improvisation. Yep. And so we touched on these a little bit when we talked about sort of our tips for GMs and, you know, improvisation. You always have to be flexible because, of course, the party is going to pursue the no-name blacksmith that yep. you just like, yeah, here's a blacksmith, as opposed to, you know, the plot that you've spent eight hours constructing. But also, you know, you don't want to just throw them in and have them get way over their heads because you didn't plan correctly or, you know, have them not have anything to do. So... Let's just jump right in. What are your thoughts, Jacob, on so this, uh, this good, structure? Good for everyone to know is that Greg and I are both GMs and both have pretty much opposite GMing styles. It's true. So I am the improv GM. I do very minimal preparation for the most part. I have an idea in my head normally as to what I would want to happen in that session and the most that I ever really prepare is that I bookmark what monsters could possibly come out during this session. Right. I also usually have a list of names, and that's it. Yep. That's, yeah, that's definitely your MO. I am very much the opposite when I take the time to actually do what I want to do. A lot of times, sessions will sneak up on me, which is weird because they are planned in advance. But in an ideal situation, I've got time to really do a big old think through of, okay, this is the plot threads that we have left over from last session. This is what I am anticipating that the party may or may not want to investigate, you know, have up to maybe three branching pathways 
for that. These are the relevant NPCs if there are recurring NPCs. These are the relevant NPCs if there are new NPCs. These are the names that they have, although I do also keep at my friend's suggestion, which I'm very thankful for. Thank you, Bryn. I do keep a list up of just stock fantasy names, like ready to go at the drop of a hat, because that way you don't have to look for them. Encounters. If I'm planning for there to be a combat encounter, that's planned ahead of time. I love the encounter builder, sort of the general rules about, okay, you take the, at least in D&D 5th edition, you know, you take the experience value of each monster and you add them together and you run them through a, a wood chipper or whatever the hell and you get uh you know this is a medium difficulty encounter for a level three party type situation so i'm very much about planning ahead not necessarily for all contingencies but i like to have some some for knowledge of what i'm expecting to have happen we have very different approaches to gming and I don't think either one of us is wrong in the way that we do it. It's just really, I think a big question is of comfort mm-hmm. and of what types of things you are okay with and what types of things you are not okay with leaving to chance. Right. So for me, for example, I think a lot of the stuff that I do, I focus a lot of my GMing on social interactions mm-hmm. and having a more focused campaign on theater of the mind describing things and having free reign for the characters i do try to have an overarching story but for me that story can be a little bit more emergent than planned sure yeah i mean there's there's definitely room for that especially when you consider the format of a a D&D campaign tends to be from session to session. People are usually taking notes, but a lot of times it's sort of top-level summaries mm-hmm. of what's going on. You're not going to have a lot of people usually get into the real nitty-gritty of the lore of your campaign. That said, I am much, much more comfortable really planning things out and making sure that all those plot threads work together. This is a thing that just... It's maybe it's my attitudes towards world building. Maybe it's just sort of a, a neurosis as a person. But I find that it's extremely important for me when I'm crafting a session to have essentially a baseline, really, of what is true. You know, you yeah. have to have whether the party's going to see it or not. You know, they're going to see the tip of the iceberg. Mm-hmm. But you have to have a, a timeline and sort of a relationship map in order to know, okay, regardless of whether or not the party sees this, this is what the Thieves' Guild is doing. This is what's happening with the King's Advisors. Because then, when that segment of the plot again becomes relevant, you've got the consistency. And it's not just, oh crap, where does this character need to be? And I think, actually, if I had to put my finger on it, that is what I'm trying to avoid. What I really hate as a person and as a GM is the feeling of losing control okay yeah not necessarily you know if they go off in a different direction that's great you know players are empowered to explore but of feeling like i'm losing control of the narrative Mm -hmm. in such a way that it lessens the experience for the players that's something that i definitely get very in my own head about and so that's that's why in sort of my estimation planning does tend to be uh it's more of a comfort zone yeah, no, and, and the thing is, like, with what you were just saying, a lot of times in my style, 
I also have, at least in my head, a generalization of like what is happening in the world. I usually don't go as deep as, as like, you know, what guilds, uh, though, though depending on what actors I have in, in the campaign kind of thing, what characters, what things are important, mm-hmm. I will have that going on. But in general, what I like to do is, and this is how I usually like, just describe my GMing style, is I have a skeleton. And sure. people are exploring that skeleton, and as they do, that's where I flesh it out. Like, yeah, I might know like what's happening at the tips of the toes over there, but if they're at the you know the shoulder, I'm not going to care about that. Mm-hmm. I'm going to think more about the fingertips and you know that kind of stuff rather than caring that much about the um, the very end of it. Yeah. That being said, another thing for me is that I haven't DM'd a full campaign in a long time. Right. That is one thing that our group does a lot, actually, is one-shots. Yes. And actually, the Starfinder campaign that I'm currently working on is the one that I've actually started to GM that we, we've we actually had sort of at least reoccurring group. Mm-hmm. Before that, I think the last time that I really tried to GM an actual campaign, I think it was like a few years ago. It was probably like the... It was, it was the campaign I think I did when I was in Japan back in 2013. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that's quite a while. So it's it's been a while. That being said, I still had a very similar approach to everything where like for the most part, I like being as surprised as to, about what happens in the world as the characters are and as mm. the players are, but without letting them know that I'm as surprised <laughs> as the, the as they are. Right. You've got a good poker face. Yeah, exactly. It's it's that kind of thing where I think this is one of the things that a lot of GMs do and and say a lot of it is for the story. Yeah. And just like for the experience. So for me, I usually don't fudge die rolls, but I can very much fudge results. Yeah. And so I think this is a big part of things. Combat Mm -hmm. in particular for me does tend to be an area where I am. You know, I'll plan the encounter. Yes. Like, I know exactly what enemies they're going to be facing, and it's calibrated to be more or less, you know, difficult. Mm-hmm. But once combat starts, it's a free-for-all, right? Yeah. And you have to balance this sort of, okay, am I looking to be antagonistic? Do I want to go for a TPK? Do I want to have all of these archers, like, just open fire on the squishy at the back <laughs> line? And if, if you do, then great. That's fine. Kill your characters. But if you don't, then suddenly it becomes about, okay, their damage output maybe isn't as high as I thought it was going to be. I'm going to slash some of these hit points off. Yep. Or, you know, oh, I felt like that should have hit. Okay, let's take this armor class down by maybe two points. Yeah. And a lot of improvisation behind the scenes to, I think, preserve the experience. Again, what you're really trying to do is make sure that they have a good time. Mm-hmm. And so sticking to the rigidity of, okay, no, if I nerf this, then... It's not going to be as hard an encounter. They're not going to get as much experience. This is another area where flexibility is big for me. I don't do experience. I don't either. You level up when I decide that you've done enough. Yep, pretty much. Um, but so it, I think it pays to be very flexible with regard to actual combat mechanics as long as it's consistent mm-hmm. and behind the scenes. So, you know, if they yep. have previously hit on a 17 and you decide, oh, this isn't going to be... Like, this is too easy. Don't raise the AC because that's something that they've already encountered. Just yeah. raise the hit points. Yep, exactly. Or, you know, raise up a, a metric that they haven't dealt with before. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and so for me, a lot of times, combat is the part that I struggle with the most. Mm-hmm. Because of the way that I GM, I don't really plan combat as much. Usually, for example, the last Starfinder session that I ran, mm-hmm. my planning of combat was about 10 minutes before the session started, I looked through the monster book. <laughs> And was just like, that's that's pretty cool, that's cool, and that's cool. Okay, those are bookmarked now, and I think that the story is going to go in this direction, so one of those is going to happen. All right. Cool. And the way that I usually do it is I look at the CR, and I'm just like, all right, this seems to be a challenge rating that seems to be approximately their level, Mm -hmm. so I'm going to throw this at them. If it becomes too easy, all right, more hit points. If it becomes too hard... Less hit points and less damage output. Exactly. Or something along those lines. And so it's like a lot of times on the fly I do that. And that's why I tend to focus a lot on more interactions between the players and their world rather than just combat encounters. Because though combat encounters can be really cool and they can be a lot of fun showcasing certain characteristics and all that kind of stuff, a lot of times I prefer to go for... Like, you guys had the opportunity to kill the Hesper. Mm-hmm. You didn't. You talked to him and created a solution that I would never even have thought of. Right. And actually managed to further the plot more than I would have expected to further the plot in that session. Yeah, we killed it. Yeah, you guys. Way to go us. You guys did an amazing job. And, and it's that kind of thing that I like to be open to. Like, I didn't want it to be so that, that like, you know, immediate hostility that, like, you know, oh, this is a combat encounter. Music starts and you start fighting. Mm-hmm. It, I like the ambiguity of having a possibility of talking your way out of it. Yeah. Of sneaking away or something like that. Of noticing it beforehand. Like, you know, just giving you guys the those little snake creatures that were up in the, in the rafters and you knew that they were around and they were decently difficult to kill. And then one of them snuck into the room with you and then... And then the oh shit moment when the uh, one of our, your characters noticed that there was another consciousness in the room mm-hmm. that uh, you didn't realize. <laughs> yeah, no, and I, I definitely appreciate that. Having having the flexibility and sort of the openness to letting a situation develop on its own and not necessarily treating it as a combat encounter straight away mm-hmm. is good. I think it leads to probably richer gameplay. But if you, if you think about tabletop gaming, for the most part, into, you know, you can... You can break it up into three different types of encounters. Mm-hmm. You've got combat encounters, you've got social encounters, and you've got exploration or investigation encounters. Yeah. Those are kind of generally, when I'm thinking about what I want to have happen in a session, those are kind of how I conceptualize it. And I think, you know, no plan survives first combat with the enemy. Combat encounters, you can plan as much or as little as you want, but as soon as combat starts happening, everything's improvised. Oh, yeah. Social, I think, does lend itself more to improvisation and going with the flow, but I think it's also important to plan out information like what information does this person have? Mm-hmm. You know, you you can play things by ear and say, okay, well, you know, based on the results of their you know, diplomacy check or whatever, I might decide to to volunteer a piece of information that I hadn't previously. But I think it's also important to set a baseline of this is what this character knows. This is how difficult they are to influence. These are sort of generally where their loyalties lie, and that's what's going to add color to that social interaction mm-hmm. because it gives it consistency. And I think yeah. that's a very important through line in terms of generating, you know, quality and having, you know, 
giving a campaign the opportunity to go somewhere, it has to be somewhere before it can go somewhere. Yeah, and I think that that's one of the things that, like, consistency is definitely a difficult thing when you're improvising a a campaign. Mm -hmm. It is probably the most difficult thing because you're like, wait a minute, have they been here before? Do they know anything about this? Like, who knows what and all that. And that's one of the reasons that what I do is I always try to, like, set a campaign somewhere where they haven't been. Right. Yeah. Solves that. Then, like, you know, they don't have that issue, that kind of stuff. And I think in that way, like, improvisation is definitely a lot better for certain types of gameplay. So first, you've got the one shot. Right. One shot, easily improvisable. Totally. That is something that you can make up and just pull out of your ass as I have on stream multiple times. (laughs) But that also, the issue with that is that if you improvise badly, you can have a bad session. And when you only have one session, one bad session equals 100% bad. That's true. You're you're batting zero at that point. Yep. Whereas the other part that that is improvisable is is almost like, I guess, a hybrid of the improvisation and more planning. So a lot of times it's like, the the whole campaign management goes from high level, mid level, and then like session level mm-hmm. almost. So I think a lot of times if you have a high level plan for the arc of the campaign, like and an idea of what's going on at the mid level, then improvisation in the session level can be really good. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. But if you don't have those top two layers, then the improvisation that you do is going to become pointless. Yeah. So if you don't have like what's going on in the world, or if you don't have a direction that you want this to be going in this living, breathing kind of world, it's going to feel stale. You're not going to have the interactions and that kind of stuff between the other characters. Mm -hmm. And the biggest thing is just like, you know, if you keep sending your people off to different places, you're not going to have those reoccurring NPCs that you'd like to have that, that will really tie your characters into the story right and i think generally the biggest takeaway at least for me in a sort of a discussion of these two otherwise competing aspects of gming is everything in moderation yes you know if you take either of these two extremes you're going to have a campaign that feels completely rigid you're going to have a campaign in which your players feel trapped yep or on the other end of it you're going to have a campaign in which your players have no idea what's going on they have no idea what to expect Mm -hmm. and therefore they don't know what to do um, exactly. You can't so, go uh, either way if you if you do any one of them to the extreme. Extreme improv is just going to fail most likely. Yeah. Unless you are some god of improvisation, you're probably not going to be able to remember everything and a D&D campaign run by Colin Mockery. They have um there is a thing that is uh improv D&D. Yes. I need to look this up now. Anyway, Yes. Back back to the topic at hand. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so so if you go full improv, then likely you're not going to be able to keep any threads. You're not going to be able to tie them all up in any way. Your world is going to be inconsistent, and it's just going to be difficult to run mm-hmm. and keep people's attention. If you do the other, uh, the other direction, which is railroad your players, mm-hmm. it is going to be not fun for them. Because they're not going to be able to do what they want to do. And they're going to feel like they are just playing through your story. And there are some people who like that. But especially if you you know don't allow creative solutions to problems, it's going to suck. Yeah. 
it's going to suck a lot and a lot of people are not going to enjoy it you need to keep input from everyone and you need to make sure that everyone is enjoying their session because otherwise what's the point exactly yeah what's the point took the words right out of my mouth yeah so in between those i think there are a lot of varying and very viable strategies for gming um i like to do the improv style because that's what i'm good at i love doing the voices i love doing the just like you know improving like this one guy who like you guys start talking to and usually correct me if i'm wrong I do a decent job at it enough that you don't really realize that I'm making this up off the top of my head. Well, I mean, other people might. I know I know the real you. Yeah, you I know, know the real I me. see behind the curtain. Yes, exactly. But most people can usually like, not notice as much. Whereas if you go for the planning, like, you know, you're good at that. You're good, especially at like combat planning and or at least encounter building and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm horrible at that. And that is a strength that like, you know, helps with the planning. And then, you know, like, you know, if you have, for example, a monologue in your back pocket of, of, from someone that can always be useful. The, the extra planning lets you create a very immersive experience. Yeah. I think it can lead to some more, I mean, having a few scripted moments here and there can really help bump up the sort of cinematic quality, I think, of your of your world, of the story that you're building. You know, having a, a monologue, as you described, or, you know, a really uh, well-scripted description of something, a chase scene, maybe, mm-hmm. I think can be, can be really immersive and really interesting. Uh, but you don't want to take it too far. Because then, you know, the players are going to be, they're going to be stuck, railroaded, as you said, and they're not going to feel like participants. They're going to feel like observers. Exactly. And this is not your show. As a DM, this is a show that everyone is a part of. Yep. Well, there you have it. Just a little bit of uh, our discussion of um, the different GMing styles, uh, improv versus planning, and how they both work together, and also how they can go a bit too far in either direction. Thank you everyone for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Dragon's Demise. Be sure to tune in later this week. We'll be doing another episode of Seafall on the stream. We'll see how salty I get on this one. Yeah, hopefully not too bad. I'm pulling for you, man. I I really want to see you surge to the top. So join us and find out if Jacob can stage an upset. That'll be this Wednesday. This coming Saturday is International Tabletop Day. We're going to be broadcasting live from Labyrinth Games and Puzzles, where we've got some video, audio, all that jazz. There's going to be some designers there. They'll be inviting people to demo their games, and we'll be talking at them while that happens, being goofy like we do. If you're in the DMV area, come on down. It should be a lot of fun. They're going to have, I think, like face paint and balloons, like full-on carnival stuff. Yeah, I think they're supposed to be like an acrobat doing some fun stuff. Yeah, they go all out for International Tabletop Day. So hopefully we will see you there. Also, on Sunday, we're going to have some additional video. Our good friend Sam over at Googly Eyes on Magic Cards, uh, he put together a cube. So we're going to be drafting some more unstable, just like we did last time, although with a little bit more of uh, custom-tailored packs. So tune in Sunday, the 29th. That's going to be happening. Should be a blast. And... Final announcement, WashingtonCon 4 is going to be happening September 8th and 9th this year, the same location as last year, the Georgetown University Hotel and Convention Center. As I said, tickets are on sale. You can head over to WashingtonCon.com and pick those up. 
going to be amazing. Always is. Uh, it's always a blast to see all of the you know designers, players, just everyone in the community from all across the DMV area come out and have a really amazing weekend. So hopefully we will see you there as well. I know that's a lot of things that we uh, we will see you at, but you know it's always fun when we do. And finally, don't forget to tune in next week when we review Evolution Climate.